Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 316 and part two of my conversation with University of Texas at Arlington percussion professor Andrew Eldridge. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, PASIC 2022. The annual Percussive Arts Society International Convention is coming up soon, and I look forward to seeing you all there in early November, if you're able to go. I'm currently in the midst of interviewing a lot of guests for the annual PASIC preview episodes, and I look forward to sharing that content with you very soon, as well as the full interviews with those same guests post-conference. I've got a good combination of new folks and some old friends joining me for these, so stay tuned. It will be a lot of fun all around. Secondly, Marching Mizzou. We just completed our homecoming weekend involving our annual high school marching band competition and our homecoming parade, which came off very well, as well as a full weekend of activities. Band did a great job all weekend maintaining a high level and staying strong and focused with an unusually hot late October Saturday with temperatures in the mid-80s. We had our annual Marching Mizzou alumni band joining us for pregame, along with a special collaboration with Vanderbilt's marching band, who joined us for part of our halftime show. It was a great collaboration, and I hope we get to do more of those in the future. And our football team did manage to hang on to beat Vanderbilt's football team, but it was a weird game. Anyway, let's move on and get back to our guest this week, Andrew Eldridge. Hopefully you caught part one where we heard from Andrew about his work at the University of Texas at Arlington and his concert and gigging life there. Growing up in Germany and Texas, his undergrad and master's years, and his time as a band director. This week in part two, we'll get to his time as a doctoral student and teaching in the Dallas area, his research on funding new music, and our usual close to the episode. One last note, the very morning that I am recording this, one of his students posted a video of themselves playing my trombone marimba duo, Athens Sonata. And that was just a super cool way to wake up. Thank you, Andrew, for pointing that out. And I'm happy to let you all know about that also. But here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 7th, 2022. And it begins right now. After your period of time band directing, where what's the next step for you? Um, my last year as a full-time band director was in 2011. And uh, right at that time, that uh, I think I was mentioning that there was a budget shortfall in Texas. And so a lot of school district budgets were getting cut. Um, and that's right when I started at uh, Texas Christian University. Um, and so I was wanting to get my doctorate. Um, uh, TCU, uh, their doctorate program was extremely new. And so um, as, because they don't have the resources to teach uh, remediation courses, mm. they, uh, they make all of their entrants um, or the applicants pass the comprehensive exams before they can be admitted to the DMA program. And so it's kind of, um, you, you take the end exam and, and you pass it at the beginning and then they have some follow-up stuff at the end of the degree. Uh, I didn't pass it the very first time. And so I was placed in what's called the artist diploma program, which is basically a, um, um, a performance certificate. 
And um, uh, I audited a bunch of classes and, uh, and that next year I passed the comprehensive exams and uh, I started my doctorate in 2012 officially. So I did that for uh, three years before I got the job at the University of Texas at Arlington. While I was there, I was also teaching uh, adjunct at Texas Wesleyan University, teaching their percussion ensemble uh, applied lessons, percussion methods, and just doing whatever I could to get the experience so that I could be ready to get the job whenever I started to apply. And then uh, my teacher, uh, Brian West, also took a sabbatical during that time. So I had a semester where I was sabbatical replacement at TCU. And I uh, got great experience working with uh, the colleagues over there and as well as the students. And, and then 2015, I uh, applied for the senior lecturer of percussion position here at the University of Texas at Arlington and won that. And I was real excited to, to get a chance to, to you know, step in on my own and um, and work closely with Michael Varner. Uh, Michael Varner is my predecessor here. And learned a lot about his approach to the studio and, and philosophy and just loved getting to know his experiences because uh, he's been here for a long time. He was the first full-time percussion professor here at the UTA. After he retired in 2017, um, I had a year of, of senior lecturer position and also coordinating the percussion studio while the university decided what they kind of wanted to do next. And my second year as a, the coordinator of percussion, they opened up a tenure track search and, and I won that search as well. And since then, the, the stories continues to be written. That year where you're a getting an artist diploma, do, does anything that you're doing during that time mean anything for the, for the doctorate? Or was that just a completely separate thing and you basically start over once you're doing your doctorate as a student? Yeah, I, I had to petition that they could accept uh, certain things from the artist diploma. So I think what they did is they accepted the applied lessons and then maybe elective less or the elective credits for um, the percussion ensemble. But again, the, the the degree is geared mainly towards people that are wanting to pursue uh, more performance stuff. And they're just uh, they're spending time in the practice room quite a bit or they're it's kind of like a limbo uh, position to 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 get to the next step. And so for me, it was more of a stepping stone into the doctorate. So you're doing the artist diploma. That is, that is your full-time like thing. You're not, you're no longer teaching high school, right? I was teaching lessons on the side. And so I was teaching about 45 lessons. That's that, that year. And of course, you know, we, we, we live in this bubble here in Texas where almost every high school program has got, you know, 50 percussion students and, and so you can teach private lessons to them as well as the middle school students and beginners. So it's not uncommon for percussion and studios here at the high school level or secondary level to have maybe 75 to 100 students total um, and from sixth grade all the way up to 12th grade. So you can find a lot of lesson work to be able to fill your schedule. As far as the artist diploma requirements, um, as long as I was at the percussion ensemble rehearsal and I was there for teaching or taking lessons, then everything else was fine. Brian West had asked me if I wouldn't mind just kind of, you know, hanging out around the studio a little bit just to kind of learn a little bit more of the from the students and then also for them to see me practicing just a little bit more so that there was a little bit more interaction between me and the rest of the students. But for me, um, a, a big part of my um, teaching philosophy is that regardless of whatever staff I want to be in or that I am in, I want them to think of me as a team player and that's someone that contributes quite a bit. And so even when I was an assistant band director, I wanted people to know that I could help out doing whatever it was. 
And uh, one of the questions that um, Brian West asked me when I was first coming in is how would I envision myself implemented in a doctorate program if I was a GA? I said, honestly, I'd approach it from the same perspective as an assistant band director is my goal is to anticipate your needs for whatever it is and try to uh, problem solve those needs before you even know it's a need. And so um, I worked on trying to make sure that he had all of his ducks in a row and he had everything that he needed to do. And I think it, we had a great relationship because of that. Yeah, very cool. On the diagnostics to get into the doctorate, what was the what was the holdup? Well, because, you know, I'd, I'd gone back to, to teaching right after my master's degree. There was just some time off that I hadn't used those skills in six or seven years. And uh, and so I was OK with theory. I had to do a little bit more with the oral skills um, stuff as percussionists typically do. And then um, I had to do a little bit more on music history because that was one of my weaker subjects in grad school. Uh, so um, a lot of the questions that were maybe on the music history were things like, write as much as you know about the development of the orchestra, you know, and yeah. trace everything you could from when it was um, uh, in the, the chamber of the camera all the way through to present day. Um, give, you know, composers, dates, uh, pieces. And I mean, it was quite, quite open ended trace the development of the magical. Uh, and so things that maybe as percussionists, we're used to orchestra stuff and we have to spend more time learning some of the vocal stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was some of the music history hang up for me. And you asked about my artist diploma. Um, it was it full time with the things that I audited. I treated it like I was there full time in school. So if there was a class available for me to sit in, I always talked about it with the teacher in advance for the semester. And I wanted them to treat me like I was an undergrad student, basically, is that I attended that class every single day. I even turned in the homework every single time that it was there and I got grades back and I could modify how I was studying moving forward. I think uh, with the attention to finishing some of the, the homework assignments that they how they wanted, it gave me the feedback that I needed to be able to pass the comprehensive exams when they came up. I, I know that that uh, Brian West took a sabbatical, but what was your general did, did you have assignments within your grad assistantship? Yeah, so my primary assistantship was in the, the steel band. Um, so um, I don't know how much you know about um, Brian's program at TCU, but they've got a lot of opportunities for everyone to participate. And almost every single student participates in almost every single ensemble. So there's a, a ton of things to rehearse. And so, so that you don't overload just one person, uh, my assistantship was focused on um, teaching both of the steel bands because uh, there was two two levels. One was an intro to it, and then the second one was mainly upper division students. Uh, but then trying to get them the experience to, uh, to to functionally play the instrument and have fun doing it. We also had sometimes uh, off gigs uh, where we'd go play for a president here or or play for a private party at this institution. And and so we had some grad students that we would rehearse on outside of the, the main rehearsals and and prepare music and and just be ready to go for a couple of sets. And, and of course, with my experience with IPAN at University of Illinois and with my undergraduate steel pen experience, I was pr felt pretty comfortable with that and being able to, to plug in, teach the students what they needed to do. Did they at TCU have um, like different ensemble groups of steel pans or was it kind of, was it like one set and then one group would play on it and once then the next rehearsal, it would just be kind of the same set of pans. Yeah. So I structured the steel rehearsals back to back and it was just one set of pans, but it's pretty much a steel pan orchestra. Um, so we go all the way from the bases 
through the um the um, is it six gallery. or eight for the bass that you have uh six yeah yeah uh, we didn't use bass guitar uh, we also use it as an opportunity to expand the drum set um, opportunities because yeah. some students might not get the chance to play in a band once they finish taking lessons on drum set. And so there were students that their first time to functionally play drum set and try to keep a group together was when they stepped on the stool uh, for the um, the steel band. Mm -hmm. And so taught them a little bit about groove, maybe talked them about um, some uh, adequate fills, something that's more appropriate um and, and things that um they might not have done before and i also know that that brian's program is is very heavily focused on orchestral percussion i mean uh, excuse me percussion orchestra that's yeah. what i meant and so what were some of the pieces that you had a chance to work on under him so that first semester i was at tcu they had won the the call for tapes uh excuse me the international percussion ensemble competition now the ipec yeah um, so that's 2011, and um, there was a, a lot of brand new literature that we played. Um, one was uh, Image by Martin Blessinger. It was a really neat um, little uh, uh, piece. Um, so, of course, with uh, Wes' experience from Dr. Richard Gibson, um, that percussion orchestra component is very heavy at TCU. All of the stuff that we played on that, that 2011 concert was PO-focused. We also gave a premiere to Jacob Remington's Prelude to Paradise, um, uh, which is high energy, and that's how we closed the the concert. And so I got the chance to be able to play that um, uh, from the very beginning and see how the the edit process works from from his perspective. Um, uh, there was a a couple other new pieces that escaped me. I think there was one from uh, Matt Moore, maybe, or we might have done that in the spring right after that that PO or the twenty eleven. Um, so that was critical mass, I think. Um, we also got um, a, a chance to, to premiere new music from Pius Chang, um, his Nocturne, which is one of my absolute favorite pieces, teaches you a lot about patience. Um, and then we did a new piece from Casey Cangalosi, the, the Ocio. Um, and so uh, when I finished there, we had just premiered a piece called Consider the Birds by Ryan George. Uh, which is another piece that is uh, very heavily influenced by Chris Dean's Vespertine formations. So a lot of the hocketed marimba parts uh, playing uh, uh, cascaded arpeggios. One thing that I really appreciate about his his approach to percussion orchestra is that he is uh, feels very compelled to generate new literature for the the idiom. And so he's trying to commission at least one piece a year, if not multiple pieces a year, and just trying to push the art form forward. Did you do any of the um, kind of the heavyweight early pieces during while you were there? Are you talking about the the early OU percussion yeah. pieces? Yeah, we played a couple pieces. Of course, uh, Richard Gibson conducted us, you know, maybe once a semester or once a year, depending on his duties that he had. Uh, so I had a, the, the ability to to play um, Joseph Blaha's Night Watch with mm -hmm. him. And then play the entire Palace of Nine Perfections with him, which incidentally, my students are playing the, the third movement of Palace this semester for our percussion concert. Dun, 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 dun right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still remember it all these years later. Good. Uh, and so got a chance to play um, Duo Chopin-esque uh, by uh, Michael Hennigan and, um, and, and do a couple of these other pieces that were really special to him. Uh, so... I really enjoyed that process of getting that the Dr. Gibson approach to teaching this stuff. Was there a finish? Was there a dissertation, a finishing document, lecture recital? What? How did the capstone for that? 
while Dr. West was the head of my committee, um, I spent a lot of time with Dr. Gibson on how to to really shape um, this, especially since I was the very first doctoral student in the program. Mm -hmm. They kind of wanted me to set the bar for how future percussionists might need to do this. So Dr. Gibson, I remember a very distinct quote for him. He says, Andy, you need to consider making a bigger contribution to music and not just percussion. And that's kind of defined my entire career since since that one meeting. And so yeah. we, I was talking about possible um, dissertation titles. It was actually, they call it a document, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not quite a dissertation. It's, it's a document. And so I was considering, you know, a performance analysis of X piece or um, uh, a, a an analysis, theoretical analysis of this piece, you know. And he said, you know, I don't think any of those are great. Um, he said, why don't you do um, something about your um, your fund development? I had done some Kickstarter programs for various institutions, whether it was through Lone Star Wind Orchestra or for mm. myself. And a lot of the pieces I originally, um, when I first commissioned, were through those Kickstarter projects. And so he said, why don't you do an analysis of classical music projects from the start of Kickstarter to such and such date? So I did a seven-year scope of uh, or survey of Kickstarter projects on, um, or excuse me, uh, classical music projects through Kickstarter. And then the question came up was, well, why are we using classical music? You know, is it art music or whatever? And basically it came down to, well, that's the way that Kickstarter lists it. They say classical music. So that's why we're going to call it that. And uh, I learned a lot about the, the research process through that. Um, so some really good information through there. You know, for my document, I found out that uh, on Kickstarter at that time, uh, projects that were less than 30 days in length that were trying to raise less than $5,000 and had less than, than 10 reward tiers were going to be more successful than others. Like, uh, like if something was for large group versus chamber versus small, was there a difference or like solo project? Was there a difference there? Um, so most of the Kickstarter projects that were successful fell on three categories. One was, uh, funding a specific concert. Uh, one, uh, the second was funding a specific recording. And then the third was funding a specific trip. Um, sometimes there were a couple of commissions. I think my projects were in the commission things, um, uh, but most of them fell into the recording concert or trip, um, realm at that time too. Kickstarter also had, um, the, it was an all or nothing approach, you know? So if, even if projects reached 99% of their goal, then they still weren't going to pass. So I had one unsuccessful project, which is what actually instigated us to do this research. And it, it raised, you know, at the time, it was like 60 or 70% of its goal. And mm. so um, it was, and that was the one that I was trying to commission um, David Maslank, uh, Dan Welcher, and some of these others. Um, and I, I wanted to know why this one failed, but all these others are very successful. Yeah. I ended up in the past, after that, the unsuccessful project, I still personally funded all of these commissions and uh, I was very happy with that product but at the time it, it kind of stung because I wanted to know uh, you know all these people wanted to give money for it and and then it just never happened do you when your time as a student is up are did you, did you finish everything or were you did you still have stuff left before you took the the your first job I was ABD when okay. I took the the first job uh now uh, I'm trying to remember if if I had already had my topic proposal passed or not. And so <laughs> I had already taken the comp exams, but um, 
the topic proposal either was passed that spring or I passed it the next fall. Yeah. Now, when I passed the uh, that that fall, uh, when I was first teaching, so this is fall 2015. My mm-hmm. daughter was born in November, and um, and so she had some extreme uh, challenges, and we were in you know NICU for nine days, and then we had spent uh, three months in the hospital, and um, after that, and so there was a lot of things that we had to fix, and I went to a um, a uh, an after party after a concert, and, and Richard Gibson was there, and um, he said, you know, if um, um, if if it's not pressing right now, I think you might want to see if you can maybe take some time off, focus on the family, and then finish the the, the document whenever you can. So yeah. that March of 2016, I had just finished my recital, faculty recital, and I said, all right, I've got to get this done because if I wait, I feel like I'm going to maybe not get it done, and I really need this degree. So uh, around spring break uh, 2016, so middle March, I wrote full-time. Uh, anytime I had a break, I wrote at least eight hours a day all the way until August. And so in August, um, at that time, I went to the the writing center and I had them do the uh, help me with the revision. So um, I scheduled eight appointments with the writing center. And so over August and September, they limited you to only one hour per week that you could meet with them. So for eight weeks, we just edited as much as we could. And so the the first official draft that the committee received was actually the second draft. Mm. From August to September, we revised it heavily. And, uh, you know, with any revision, you go from this many pages all the way to that many. And right. so I had submitted at first uh, like 140 page document, and then it went down to 80 pages. I was like, oh, wow, I can cut a lot of words and make this a little bit better. Um, and, and so I sent out that, that second draft to the committee. And then from there in December, 2016 is when I finally graduated. So we're looking at maybe a year and a half after I started at UTA before I had actually finished. Did having the writing center on a, you would go one hour a week. Does that, so did that kind of keep you on task to say, I have to have, I'm sure you had way more than an hour's worth of editing for something like that, but you you were like, okay, I have to have this much ready. So it's good practice for me to just know that I have to, that I have to give them something next week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. So I, I forget what the exact name of it is, but there's this, um, this, this thought idea um, or this thought that whatever project you have is going to fill up the exact amount of time that it's going to take. Um, and so uh, whatever date that you choose to to do something, you can either choose to do it by the end of this week or the end of next week, and that project will take that amount of time to finish. And so with me, I, I set those those dates with the writing center in advance. And so for eight weeks, I was like, all right, I know on Wednesday at one o'clock for the next eight weeks, I've got to be at the writing center. Yeah. Uh, so, But you have to remember, too, that I had started writing uh, officially full time, like the middle of March. So I'd written almost the entire thing by the time that I had gone to the writing center. And I think the only thing that I lacked was maybe the the closing statement or the closing chapter uh, just to, um, to wrap up the final results. You're already working at UT Arlington while you're finishing your writing. Mm-hmm. Were they um, giving you a time frame that. Or because the position was not tenure track yet, this wasn't a factor. Is that what happened? Yeah. Uh, in terms so, of being done so that you could, they could like, yeah. 
right? Yeah, exactly. So um, with the senior lecturer positions, um, the UT system really prefers it to have a terminal degree in hand before you're hired. Now they'll take ABD uh, for that terminal degree, but they encourage you to get it done as soon as you can. Um, now with the senior lecturer, um, I I tried to make it as soon as I can, which was a year or so, but it ended up being about a year and a half, but they were okay with that. Officially, when you're tenure track, you need to be on a terminal degree in hand. They'll sit, they'll sometimes take the ABD, but in my experience here, they very, very rarely do that. Um, they want the, the terminal degree in hand. You know, you, you're just backtracking a sec, but when you were telling me about, you know, you taking all those lessons um, while you were doing your, your provisional year at the doctorate, you may think of how, I think I've talked to people who have gone to North Texas and basically one of the things that, because there's so many students there, but, but there's a, I, it seemed to be impressed upon me that the professors at North Texas would just be like, listen, you can just, you can teach lessons. <laughs> like, it's, like almost like, you know, like you may not have an assistantship, but there's like, you can make a living while you're doing your job. Basically. Absolutely. That's, there's no lack of work. Um, if you wanted to fill your schedule, you could do it with as many lessons as you wanted to. Now, um, most of the lessons, um, if you're especially if you're teaching secondary school, are going to be about 30 minutes. So if you look at 45 lessons that I was teaching that that year, that's really about 22 and a half hours of work. Uh, but Anytime that you commit to something over here, you have to think about what are you sacrificing over here to say yes to this, and, right? And which is, and the thing that you want to try to avoid doing is trading time for money. So the more time that you spend teaching these private lessons over here, that's less time that you have to do this thing that is really more important. When that was happening, were you just teaching at the schools? Yeah, most of the lessons uh, for secondary schools here are at the school during the school day. So the students oh. might come out during their their band class. And the, 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 it's very organized by their percussion director or their band director and say, all right, these two, two students can take that lesson during band class. And that's also payoff, too, for some of the students is that they know that um, they're going to pay the same amount, but they're going to maybe get a shorter lesson because we're 50 minute periods for most secondary schools around here. Most of the, the class periods here are about 50 minutes. And so um, they may take like a 25 minute lesson, but that's the benefit of taking it during the school day. You can also take lessons before the school day or after school day. And at that point, it'll move to like a 30 minute lesson. When it turns tenure track, was it, I feel pretty good about this. Was it, was that a stressful change or was it, was it, did it feel like you were actually applying for another full-time job? It was a stressful change just because it was, um, uh, I wasn't teaching as much on the tenure track on senior lecturer. It's only teaching obligations. There's no creative activity. Right. Uh, and so it was like 80% teaching, 20% uh, service. Yeah. Um, and so you're teaching a lot during the during the week. But now on tenure track, I'm on a 40-40-20 uh, split. And so yes. um, uh, it was expected that um, I teach for so much. And then I have uh, this 40% creative activity for the week. And I should be doing more performances because of that. So um, whereas before I was trying to to do the things that would help get me the job, now I have to keep doing those things that will help keep me in the job. Right. <laughs> would that mean that since you've been tenure track, did you have other um, other faculty with you? When I was uh, first moved to the tenure track, I hired Chris Nadeau to come on with me. Mm. 
So he's been here as long as I've been here, um, but he's been in as an adjunct position. Uh, now, of course, this year we have um, Joe has added on to us. So that's um, Joe Moore, and he's on a visiting assistant professor position uh, for one year. Um, and, and that's because at the end of my third year of the, the tenure track, um, I got exemplary in all three facets. So teaching, creative activity and service. And when you get that exemplary in all three facets, then they award you. It's, it's basically a teaching release. Mm. Uh, and so I'm teaching uh, a half load for the full year so that I can still teach percussion on someone. We have an upcoming performance in February at our state uh, music convention. Awesome. And I wanted to be able to continue rehearsing them throughout the fall as well. So and we also got our very first grad student this year. Um, oh, nice. Because of that, the student came to study with me specifically. So I wanted to make sure that I was here for, you know, more than just 75% of his degree. I wanted to be here for 100% of it. So I, I wanted to, to keep teaching him. So Joe's doing um, a part of my load, my half load that I had to, to give up for the entire year. Okay, I finish up with random ass questions, final segment. Uh, first question is, what's an issue, Andy, that's in either percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? You know, the there's really two things. Um, one is the constant need to use social media as a uh, primary way of networking and broadcasting or advertising um uh, I, I think especially the last four six years or so i've seen a just really strong divide in social media on on certain stances uh, of ideology and i wanted to make sure that um i wasn't being um intoxicated too much about it so i go through frequent uh, social media fast where I'll delete everything off and I'll stay off for four or five weeks just so that I don't have to do that. And also resets the algorithm that's on my, my specific app. Uh, but that, that kind of gets on me quite a bit and you'll see, I go through these phases where I'll post quite a bit and that's probably where I have the app installed more. And then where I, I won't post anything for six or eight weeks. And, um, and I know that probably hurts me with getting my, my name out there a little bit, but um, it is what it is. And I think it's more healthy uh, for me uh, and my mental state and also with my relationships around here. And then two is um, the just really um, the 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 close network that some people have in the mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. You know? and, and I know that you're going to see that in a lot of different places, but I'm I think that um, it's hard to network sometimes if people aren't open to new relationships. Uh, and so I would like to see that maybe improved a little bit. And But that's that's been the hardest thing for me to navigate, especially in this career. Uh, on that second point, is this kind of referring to how, um, you know, like, uh, and I mentioned North Texas, but, you know, like there's kind of this pipeline, like, there's like the North Texas crew and there's the Kentucky crew and the Michigan crew and Eastman crew and Florida state. Like, you know, there's, it seems like there, there's a lot of, of that kind of setup. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all about who, you know, right. And yeah. people that, you know, tend to get you the jobs later down the road. Mm -hmm. Now they have a bigger, like you said, pipeline. I like that word because it's a, it's a bigger pipeline of networking of people that they can connect to. Yeah. And you see that with several schools of, of playing, um, do you know, or did you know Alan Shin um, before he mm -hmm. passed? 
Yeah, I had I had him on a couple years before he died. Yeah. Okay, so I I love him to death. And, he was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I, I've known him since the mid '90s, uh, yeah. even when I was a high school student. My my yeah. brother um uh, that we spoke about last time yeah. he went to school at texas tech as a saxophonist and he knew alan really well so we anytime i saw alan at, at some things he would always talk to me on the side and yeah. but regardless uh, he used to tell some people that you know let your playing do the talking um is that wherever you go you don't have to to tell people what you're doing just play you know and let them see what you're about and and i have to always remember that there's there's going to be people that don't like your personality or they don't like the way that you play and that's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you can't please everybody. You have to focus on what brings you passionately into the fold. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. Um, it's weird how, you know, you can feel like one person's comment, even if it's like half net, like not as positive as other people. And you're just like, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> And that's the person you're thinking about, you know? <laughs> yep. It's uh, crazy. The social media thing is, is interesting because I agree with you. It's become such a larger part of, of, of kind of professional life. I mean, it's not just that it's a, it's something that, that you kind of need to do in, in some ways, but it's also that it's, I like kind of your way of, of realizing that for your own mental health, and personal health, you actually need to just delete, like you need to get off of it. Was this something you recently realized or was something that you've kind of known the whole time that this has been building up? Uh, you know, the very first time that I started it was when I was studying for my end of course uh, comprehensive exams at TCU. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> I, I I used at that time, Kickstarter was all social media driven. And yeah. so because I had a couple of successful projects before that yeah. I use social media quite a bit. And so, um, as I was studying for the exams, I realized, you know, I, I was spending more time on the the app than I wanted to be. So I deleted them for about eight weeks while studying. And then once I passed the, the comps, that's when I installed everything back on. But I realized that, um, uh, it was kind of a double-edged sword is that while I was um, I felt better um, physically and mentally uh, having deleted that. I had lost some connections with certain people um, that I probably needed to stay in touch with. Uh, and then there were some people that just kind of, you know, forgot about the stuff that was going on. So what I tell the students now is that when they see me posting on social media, there's really only two things, um, a two and a half, really, that if if you think about it, that social media needs to be for, I think, for the, our studio. One is um, it's a way of uh, connecting with the current students' parents because uh, a lot of them are going to be on Facebook or Instagram. I'm certainly not posting on Facebook for my current students because they're not on there. Yeah, uh, right. That's true. I, I want the their parents to see what those students are doing day to day. Yeah. So um, I try to post, you know, three times a week on the studio pages and but two is that I'm also trying to potentially recruit uh, for certain things. And so the, some of the things that I'm, I'm posting are geared more towards that. So if we're going to a competition, I'll post, hey, come by, stop by, watch our warm up or, or whatnot. And um, or I'll post some advertisements for our upcoming concerts. Third thing is I do want some of the uh, the students to have their names out there. Right. I want people that when they go and search uh, social media, that they look for this ex student that they're going to find some things in there, maybe even tied to the UTA studio. 
of course, that has a, a, a negative consequence too. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our studio classes that um, before anybody comes in the studio, I look at everyone's social media because <laughs> I want to see, are we recruiting the kind of person that's going to fit into our studio and have some of the same ideals? Are they positive? Are they engaging? Are they doing the stuff that we are already doing? Um, and so uh, I try to avoid um, uh, accepting people that are extremely negative or posting things that are contrary to what we believe philosophically for our studio. That's really good. And hopefully you've also are recruiting people who took a look at what they may have said when they were 14 and realized that they need to get that off. And then you couldn't find that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do talk about the scrubbing of the pages <laughs> um, at, at least once a year. Um, and we do talk about the way that the world interprets what you say is not in your hands. It's like you can post something and person over here is going to say, well, you meant this when you shared it. It's maybe didn't. But that person, once it leaves your your screen, uh, that they have interpretation to do whatever they need. And it's also we live in a society where everyone is a as a videographer. It's like you can't tell when someone's going to pull out that phone and start recording. And so you want to make sure that whatever actions that you do in person and online is is going to represent yourself and your family and your school and your community and and all these people are are now on your back as soon as you start posting stuff. Next question, I'm related to the previous one, which is. You know, because of the, you've already talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of the, the, what your family kind of, particularly with your daughter, kind of how you, you're dealing with. And I'm wondering how you think about mental health, that part of your life being a major part of your life. It, does that intersect with your professional life? Oh, absolutely. And it's hard to, to not have it intersect. I give the speech to my students all the time about, giving people grace whenever you think um, that they are that they don't deserve it um, because those exact same students have been extended grace even when they've made mistakes um, i'm a big believer that the university time period is a time where students should be making mistakes and learning from that without it impacting their professional life too much i've, I've been part of programs before where that's been the opposite yeah. where um, uh, mistakes at the university level pretty much ended your career um, however, um, I want these students to learn and have positive, engaging relationships with their students whenever they start going out to teach or with their colleagues whenever they start performing. Um, and so some students, they mess up pretty bad. And we talk about, well, let's figure out how we can go from here and, and pick up the pieces and turn, you, uh, turn this into a positive situation. So with, this, with my daughter specifically, I always give them the, the speech about special needs uh, children and and, you know, there's going to be some days where I'm going to be I'm going to have to rush right out and go to the hospital because we spend nights at the hospital. To that end, uh, we, we tried to work back and forth with the students about how do you treat people and how are you going to be a good person first and a, a great musician second? And, and can you enrich people that are around you, regardless of their backgrounds, whether, if you don't know it or you do know it? And so there's also some things, too, with um, special needs that the students do. Um, they might see my daughter walking through the the school. And so they say, hey, you know, and they'll try to be very patient with her. And I've seen some of the students be really do some really incredible things whenever they start interacting with with students like that. 
Another question, and it's it's not not as related to what you just talked about, but I think it's something that, that we think about a lot now more than we did is where in you know particularly in the last two to three years, have you thought about and uh, taken uh, conversations and issues inclu- of inclusivity, diversity, and equity? One thing that we've been very blessed with at UTA is that we're in a community where I haven't really had to, to focus on that as much. We've always been very diverse. We've always had a lot of inclusive people in here. And I think the more that people have seen our studio be like that, the more that they feel safe coming into it. We do think about it a lot more presently now. Um, but you know, in the years past, we haven't had to. But whenever I've looked at the studio and have thought about it, I've seen that, yeah, we, we're, we've got you know, 60, 70% minority um, students. And um, we're right about 60, 40 on male, female. And and so I've seen some studios that might have like one student uh, that is a female. And so um, we've got some students with different faiths um, that are here. And so it's kind of a melting pot. That's also a benefit of our, our type of institution that serves mainly non-traditional students students where their parents didn't go to college, they don't have a college degree, or where students have to work a lot of jobs outside of the traditional studies. So our students come in with a very good work ethic and, and trying to make sure that everything's going to work for for them. And um, because of that, they're a lot more open to other students around them. It's interesting because you said non-traditional students, and, and I, I feel like I hear that in a couple different ways because mm-hmm. sometimes that means, like you said, well, you know, it mean, it can mean first generation college students. And sometimes I was, I think of that as meaning, you know, college students who are starting out and they might be in like their thirties. Yep. So um, I, d- did you mean the, the former more, more so? Correct. Um, so most of our students are coming in as first generation college students. We do have some population that, that come in with that maybe took some time off between school and come in. Uh, we've had a couple of students that came in with a gap year that seems to be a little bit more, popular these days. Um, But compared to some of our surrounding institutions, um, a lot of the people that are being sent to those from from my observations are have are come from families that are upper middle class to upper class. Um, They may have one to two to maybe terminal degrees in their families and those students are being pushed to do certain things. Um, But for our students, they're they're mainly first generation college students or they don't have the familial support monetarily to to give them to get them through school okay some other questions not as not as serious uh but um has anyone nailed an impression of you and if so how'd they do it i i do have a little bit of uh a speech impediment and so i've, I've got oh. some students that um that they'll pick up on some of the words that i, I mispronounce or um i'll jumble certain you know syllables uh, together and so um, it's all fun and games, you know, and so they'll hear the word and then they'll laugh about it. Um, one thing I've, I've talked to students about is when they come into our percussion ensemble room, they leave the ego outside of that. And I, I even say this like that includes me, too. So we'll we'll have a good time in rehearsal and they'll they'll kind of laugh about what I said. And that might become like the buzzword for the week. And so I'll hear that word going around the halls for for quite a while. Um, uh, but it's um, that's about the, the most of the impression that I get. Gotcha. Fair enough. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical. In Texas, maybe a sweater. 
Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's perpetually hot here. Um, yeah. So summer, 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 and then just less summer. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that December or January is just less summer? Yeah, exactly. So we get to Thanksgiving and you're still looking at 70 degree weather. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt like North Texas should have maybe a little bit more snow than that. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I think just long sleeves. <laughs> the older I get, the more I get into short sleeves. And man, it's so much better. <laughs> like simplifies your wardrobe yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> very cool what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie oh my goodness um terrible movie are you familiar with the author james clear he wrote a that book seems, called, uh, what do you write uh, atomic habits Yes. I, I, so I've heard of Atomic Habits. I've, I have not read it, but I know about it. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's the number one book I recommend to all incoming students. And it, it's redefined how I approach learning music. Mm. Uh, but regardless, um, one thing that he talks about is, um, you know, reading's kind of an important thing um, for any endeavor. And so uh, he says lifelong leaders are lifelong learners. One of the things he talks about with that is you have to learn how to quit books sooner especially ones that aren't as interesting. And I think I've kind of had that same philosophy when it's come to movies is that like, as soon as I get to 10, 15 minutes in, if it hasn't piqued my interest, I just quit it. And so um, I try not to fill a lot of my life with that, um, um, with some of those, those, those worst movies, or if it did, I'm, uh, it's, I don't remember it. I do remember one of the very first movies um, uh, in middle school that I went to see uh, I loved it, but it could be considered one of the worst movies is Dumb and Dumber. Oh, <laughs> that's a great. No, I see. You're talking but, to a, a, I love a huge it. fan. It's still a great movie. We have a um, uh, we have a, a local brewery that's making a drink called um, uh, Pets Heads Are Falling Off. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, the, I mean, there's um, there could be like uh, I've already talked about how I, I jumble words, right? I, I, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of speech impediment. Um, anytime something like that happens, my reaction is always Samsonite. It was always right there. <laughs> so it's just a, the power of saying the wrong word and in, with intentionality. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Um, so it could be the best movie. It could be the worst movie. Um, I'm also a huge science fiction fan. Um, so, um, for me, of course, Star Wars, I grew up with it. I remember seeing the Empire Strikes Back when I was a little kid at the drive-in theater. Um, mm. And so uh, for me, growing up with those movies and going through maybe the dark years of the early 2000s yeah, and then the prequels, now, yeah. we're, now we're back to what I think is great, yeah. uh, especially with Kenobi. That final episode was incredible. Uh, mm. but, you know, science fiction has always had a special place in my heart. So it yeah. doesn't really matter what it is uh, generally, but if it's science fiction, I generally will watch it. Gotcha. What, what's your favorite of the more of the post you know, the recent movies that have come out since, uh, was it episode seven, I guess. As, as not even one of the episodes, but Rogue One. It, um, talk about the ending that will bring chills. I got chills right now just mentioning it, but the ending of Rogue One blew my mind. Um, I don't want to give it away to people that haven't watched it, but yeah. it's, it's an incredible movie from start to finish. It's emotional. It's impactful. Yeah. Um, and, and just in, just such a great and well done movie. And I think that's what really kickstarted my love for 
uh, like even watching Andor right now, um, mm-hmm. which is related to it, um, or The Mandalorian, all of the stuff that I grew up reading the books for um, has been really, really great. Nice. So does that mean that you're, uh, are you an avid science fiction reader? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you wanted to talk books, I can give you a lot more information. About oh, that. let's go. Let's go. So, um, one of my favorite uh, art, uh, authors is Arthur C. Clarke. Mm-hmm. Heard of him? Yeah. So the, the Rendezvous with Rama series. Um, and I, I hope they turn this into a movie soon. Um, but um, it's it's this idea that um, this, this, have you read that book before? I have not, no. Earth has, has seen this approaching um, object, and it turns out that it's a perfect cylinder. They send people over to um, this this thing through space, and they send um, uh, three people um, over to to go and, and look at this. So they find a way inside the cylinder, and they find out that there's this this atmosphere that's in there, and they can see things in there. Um, and so it's it's got four books in this series, um, and um, the first one uh, shows how they in, um, they intersect with this device and they they have to leave before it starts picking up speed and leaves, but they don't find anything in there. The second one is this um, where about 100 years later, 150 years later, this, this uh, tube comes back to the Earth's orbit and it stays there a little bit longer. So they send people there and they realize that they there are some uh, other alien species inside this tube. And so it's all about them getting inside this tube and then uh, um, learning how to to navigate around these other species. At the very end of the book, these people decide to stay inside the cylinder as it's taken out of the the Earth's orbit. And then the third book is where they are learning how to to cope with all of these different species um, while it's traveling to wherever they know. Um, They don't know where it's going, but they just know it's traveling. And then the fourth book, they find out that it's been this this ultra race of of aliens that are basically turning into a live encyclopedia all of the different species that are around them it's it's an incredible story arc mm. and there's a, a lot around the number three um that's in that book it's just really good of course there's other books uh, like orson scott cards um ender's game yeah um, i loved reading that and then as well as the follow-up books um with there as well uh, again, the story arc with the Ender and how he goes through, um, um, manipulates time to to stay alive, and it's just been really, really good. I also grew up with fantasy uh, books, so like Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time, um, or the David Eddings' The Belgariad Cycle. Um, those are all really popular uh, when I was growing up as well. Have you read, oh, Ray Bradbury? Um, a little bit, not as much. Okay. The one that's the standout is Martian Chronicles, mm-hmm. but he's uh, and that was like that one was kind of like a mind, just mind blown just the whole time. But he's also written a lot of great short stories, just yep. just like collections of short, short stories that are very good. So that's kind of feels like a, that's it's more on the it's not fantasy, but it's definitely science fi- like in, in the science fiction realm. So but those other ones, yeah, that's that, that's good stuff. Cool. Uh, all right. Do you have a sports fandom? My my family loves football, uh, and so right. now while I don't uh, watch it a lot, I always keep up with the scores because my family likes to watch it. Um, Sunday they usually watch the the you maybe they might watch the Cowboys or Saturday is a big one. They like college football quite a bit. 
Mm. Um, I do like basketball a lot more than football personally. And so I love watching the NBA uh, play all the way through the finals. And then um, of course, March madness is, is a, is a big fever. Um, so um, I like watching March Madness as well. I was trying to get into hockey a little bit when I was in grad school, but um, mm. it, it didn't really stick with me as much as that. Now, my wife, her family's all from Africa, so they mm. grew up playing um, soccer and they yeah. love watching soccer. They'll wake up in the middle of the night to watch the the, the World Cup. And so <laughs> um, I, I watch a little bit because of that, but not enough to keep up with. But for me, I guess out of all of that, it's probably basketball that I enjoy the most watching, uh, especially the faster paced college games. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, sure. are you, are you a big Luca guy? Oh yeah. Yeah. Luca is, uh, um, so back when, before Luca, I was, um, Dirk Nowitzki. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I loved watching the Mavs whenever Dirk was in the group. Yeah. Do, do you still have negative thoughts of the 2006 finals? <laughs> No, um, no, because no, you won it in, in five years later. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I just I enjoy watching um, that competitive nature of the the, the basketball, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times I like the 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 college better than the pros because of the passion that the college players have whenever they're on the court. They yeah. tend to move quite a bit faster. That they're very much into the game, and they're not into slowing down the pace of play really. Um, so it's it's a lot more um, uh, scrappy, I guess, if you will. Yeah, it's it's it is though a little jarring if you like if you spend a, particularly when you mentioned March Madness, like if you if you like spend those three weeks watching that, and then you jump into the NBA playoffs a couple weeks later, and you just realize that the like the level is just so much different. <laughs> <laughs> it's really I, jarring. Yeah. Well, and it is, and that's why sometimes the 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 regular season NBA, um, I don't watch it as much i try to i try to usually follow up on highlights yeah. once we get to to april may uh, especially early june with the nba finals that's when i'm i'm more invested i'm gonna watch it a lot more yeah it's it is, it is kind of hilarious when we get to you know you mentioned like kind of like late april when when the it's like when the playoffs start and then there's games for like five weeks in a row with no break and and it's 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 both it's like it's tiring but it's also amazing and you're like i'm just gonna go home and watch like the nuggets play not that i'm a necessarily a big nuggets fan but it's like the game's on and it's midnight and it's still good <laughs> you know yep well and so i get up at, at 5 a.m to work out and so mm-hmm. my bedtime is like 9 10 p.m right that, my body shuts down <laughs> <laughs> So you are so you're not watching the late the late playoff games necessarily. No, and, and that's not that I don't want to. It's just sure. like my body just wants to go to sleep. So <laughs> once my daughter's asleep and yeah. and and my my wife goes to bed like nine p.m. on a dot, and so uh, once everybody's asleep, I've got about maybe forty five minutes before I start shutting down, and then um, and then I'll go to bed and then maybe catch up the next morning. Nice. The ESPN app has been my friend quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Nice. Um, all right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh my goodness. Um, I've always wanted to go to Paris, France. Mm. Um, it, it's somewhere that I've never been, but just, you know, especially with some of the, the way that jazz harmony is developed from, from France. Um, 
I, I really want to go and just kind of explore the city and the arts uh, that's there. Um, I've also never been to England. I, I would love to go to London and, and visit there. I grew up in Germany, which is a little bit different experience, but I'd like to go back there and see how it's changed. Cause when I was there last, it was still East and West Germany. Yeah. Um, and so those are, uh, you know, three key places that I really want to go to that I haven't been. Nice. What about yourself? Uh, Ireland. I've not been yet. And that's okay. Top of the list. Um, I just had a friend that went there um, a couple weeks ago where I guess his, his son is in the state department, mm. uh, works in Ireland. Nice. Yeah, that's that good. What's the, what's the or origin of your last name? I don't know. Um, like I said before, I'm adopted. So um, I think it's, it's from English um, somewhere in that realm. Um, uh, I'm just not entirely sure, but it's, it's interesting when I was younger, you could see it a lot better as I've aged, my hair has gotten a little bit uh, darker, but I used to have this bright red burnt orange hair um, uh, all the way through, um, childhood and, um, and middle school. Once I got to high school with marching band, um, it, if I ever grew out like a beard, it was kind of like variegated yarn. So it would start dark right here, <laughs> get lighter until it gets to the, the, the beard. And then it would just be almost blonde right there. Um, but, uh, it's, as I've gotten older, it's gotten darker up here and a little bit thinner. Um, it's, um, it, it's, I'm not sure exactly where it's from. Uh, people used to think it was from that Ireland Scottish area with the red hair, but it's just somewhere in that realm, that part of, of as most of us are probably from. <laughs> yeah, some form. Yeah, definitely. What is a non-musical goal that you still have for your life? One of my hobbies right now is woodworking. Um, and so I do that, you know, with my dad quite a bit. The older I get, the more I want to spend time with family. Uh, and so non-musical goal is that I try to make sure that by 4 or 5 p.m. everything shuts down. I focus on family and uh, and trying to get out to see them as much as possible or hanging out with my, my wife and daughter. Um, so Friday nights is pizza nights for us. Um, uh, but my wife is very big into nutrition. And so we make everything from scratch, you know. So um, she makes the dough from scratch. And that's been Kind of our ritual for the last uh, good while now um, and then you know I try to spend as much time with them but I also want to make sure that I'm healthy for my daughter because even though she's special needs she can't really take care of herself for a lot of things so I still have to lift her up quite a bit mm. and so um, I want to make sure that I'm strong enough to be able to do that as she's starting to get a little bit older and plus we um, we just need to make sure that we're around for the long haul um, uh, to help take care of her with some of her needs Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Okay, I've got one for you. <laughs> so um, in Lone Star, right when I first started, we played this Dia de los Muertos uh, concert. Mm -hmm. And it was tied in with a, um, uh, a dance company, a, a hip-hop dance company. And so it was, we were playing the music of Gabriela, Gabriela Lena Frank. Have you heard that name before? No. Somewhere on the, the West coast, really popular composer for, especially like we mentioned earlier, giving opportunities to people are uh, um, maybe might not have it like uh, minorities and, and diversity. Uh, and so anyway, <clears throat> we played this uh, Dia de los Muertos concert where the organization was facing backwards 
And so the conductor was on the back wall and the percussionists were closer to the stage front. Um, and then we found backstage all of this um, this costuming. And so there's this um, this huge skeleton head that we all got a chance to, to put on our bodies and and take pictures with. So somewhere in my Facebook profile pictures, um, I've got a picture of me kind of doing this with this huge, massive skeleton head. Yeah on top of me but i just remember that was kind of an interesting concert because we couldn't see the audience at all and we couldn't even see the dancing that was going on we're all facing backwards the only person i could see was conductor and we're playing some crazy repertoire uh and it was really tough for us so they got a good chance to see our backsides playing all this this really fast and challenging stuff yeah. and now we can hear all the people dancing right behind us but that's probably the most bizarre one that we've we've ever done um, but of course, there's always those little gigs, you know, where you play at this this party where where certain things might have happened um, um, that you don't like to talk about. But <laughs> uh, but there's it's 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 been a fun and a very productive career so far. Um, and most of my performances, thankfully, have been really good. And I've been uh, really happy with with the way things have gone so far. Awesome. All right. Last question, Andy, what one piece of art? Could be movies, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Oh, that's a great question. So um, uh, I'm very much into electronic music right now. Um, mm. And this was actually because of the way our daughter was born. We spent a long time in the hospital. It was very important for me to continue creating art. And so I learned that if you use electronic music, you can put headphones on and not disturb anybody, right? Mm. And so I've gotten into the idea of sampling and using sounds that you would hear, but maybe not use them in a traditional way. And there's all kinds of people out there on YouTube that will take um, samples and turn them into songs. And you don't even recognize what the samples are. One of my favorites is um, Andrew Hong. He's a pretty popular YouTuber now, but he's got you know several million subscribers. But he'll do um, a complete song from just things like a beat um, like the vegetable mm. and, and he'll turn it into a whistle and he'll actually scratch uh, scratch it and he'll rub it together and turn those samples into drum packs and whatnot um, and so he's been a, a very big ableton um, educator as well on um, on youtube so that's how i found them he's done things like take a carrot and turn it into a whistle and write songs with it he did a remake of bruno mars 24 carat um uh and, and it was just ingenious the way that he takes these samples and turns it into songs. So I think that's kind of the future right now is that people are using electronics and specifically samples to create art. So this past summer, I taught a band camp uh, uh, elective class to the, the middle school students where we, I taught them how to sample things around them. And then we, we used an app on my iPad called Koala. And we started to write drum beats and little songs using Koala from samples that they found recorded on their phone. The more that you get into it, the more that you start seeing that people even like Billie Eilish. Um, so her brother, Phineas, um, is the producer of a lot of her songs. And to hear him, how he uses samples in some of the most popular Billie Eilish songs are pretty ingenious as well. There's, there's one where he's talking about using the clicking from the crosswalk signal in Australia. And it's um, uh, what is the song that's da 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 but it indeed oh bad guy bad guy so the the hi hat sound in there is the crosswalk sound 
from some crosswalk in Australia that hmm. they just load it down and turn it into like the highest. They pitched it up a little bit. So I like seeing those little um, sample Easter eggs, if you will, that are around there. Awesome. Okay, Andy, we're done. Well, thank, thank you so much, Pete. I really enjoyed that. I did as well. So great to get a chance to chat with Andrew at length. I really enjoyed getting to hear more about his story, and I look forward to chatting with him more at PASIC and at the various events we may see each other at. Thanks again, Andrew. This week's rave is the 2022 film Moon Age Daydream, a documentary of sorts about David Bowie, written, edited, and directed by Brett Morgan now playing in theaters and streaming soon on HBO Max. I've long been a fan of David Bowie, though I can't say I'm hyper-aware of the enormity of his contributions to so many aspects of the art, music, and acting world. And while this is not even remotely a by-the-numbers documentary, you are able to learn a lot about the background and the motivations of the artist at work. Brett Morgan has been involved in the documentary game for a long time, including the films The Kid Stays in the Picture, about the film mogul Robert Evans, June 17, 1994, about the sports day as it revolved around the famous O.J. Simpson car chase, and Montage of Heck, about the life of Kurt Cobain. For this work, the David Bowie estate opened up its vault of pictures, music, and in particular, visual artwork to make this immersive documentary experience. Now, if you're looking for a straight-ahead PBS-style documentary work, this is not the place. But if you're looking for a wild, visual, and auditory experience, this is a pretty good place to start. There are no talking heads in this film and no real context to what you're seeing, along with not getting any real sense of the years that they're actually covering at a particular time. But what you do get is the artist at work creating and a lot of sound bites from Bowie's career about himself regarding art and artistic philosophy, most of which take place from on-camera interviews that were taken throughout his life. It's safe to say that Bowie was a person on a constant journey, using himself and his body as a vehicle to channel whatever was making him the most fulfilled at the time. It's partially why he shifted personas and identities throughout his life while admitting that the best decision he ever made was marrying the model Iman, his wife for the final 25 years or so of his life. And I really liked the fact that pictures of them together were included here. The visual component here is both extremely high energy, striking, and effective. The film uses both an enormous amount of Bowie's music while also including a lot of live music performances making it clear that he was not only an enormously gifted songwriter, but a very effective live performer who connects with folks. It also includes a staggering amount of original David Bowie artwork, much of which I'd never seen or barely knew anything about, and a lot of that is equally profound. If it's playing near you, check out Moon Age Daydream, or check it out soon on streaming services, and enjoy! And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash 
Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.